Well, I came into the computer to order some screws. You can't get ordinary slot-headed brass wood screws in the odd sizes in the hardware store anymore. When I first built this guide boat, I just walked into the hardware store and gathered them up for a few cents and walked out the door with them. And uh, at that time, they were at the tail end of a very long line of development that is about a century and a half old where the mass production of screws like that, common slot-headed screws, um, was an essential part of American manufacturing. And that's changed. So now they've passed through that phase and they've become a luxury item on the other end and they cost three times as much. They used to be leftover junk. After we used up all the leftover junk, they're expensive again. And that's okay because they're worth it. Even the old Telecasters from the early 50s had slot-headed screws. They were still in common usage um, until the 1950s and, and somewhat after, but by the 1930s Ford was using Phillips-head screws and there was the beginnings of a of a real design evolution and manufacturing evolution of, of mechanical fasteners that have really changed the construction industry and changed the world. And I think it's kind of amazing. When there's a, a market necessity to uh, solve a problem, we get that problem solved quickly in this country. The problem comes when we have a scientific problem that also is a market necessity, but we don't have a mechanism in place for responding to that scientific problem. And by scientific problem, of course, I mean the coronavirus situation. Anyway, the slot-headed screws, oval where they need to be oval, flat where they need to be flat, are an important part of the design aesthetic of my boat. Details and proportion are everything in design, and if they don't set right, the project doesn't set right. People won't necessarily look at a screw and say, that screw would look better if it was a 3 instead of a 4. But the cumulative effect of those changes uh, is significant, I think. And I think that there's something essentially... American about striving for uniqueness that is really, really important. I think we've maybe lost it. I think that design homogenization has maybe prevented us sometimes from expressing our uniqueness. It gets wrapped up in consumerism in interesting ways too. People want to buy something unique, but if you've bought it and it's unique, it's not unique to you in quite the same way. I don't think. I think that at some level customizing something or producing something on your own is a way to take charge of something, even if it's a manufactured good, and then remanufacture it in a way that expresses not just your individuality and creativity, which is which is really important, but also that expresses your control of your own labors to produce a product that serves you rather than something else. 
One of the things I always thought was really fascinating about custom cars is that they would mix together different brands. There was no sort of brand loyalty or consistency. You know, the Mercury's, custom Mercury's from the early 50s, late 40s, all had Cadillac Sombrero hubcaps. They often had Packard taillights. They just took some of the stuff that was cool and reconfigured it. There's something amazing about that, too. I think now we've just accepted that a Toyota Camry and a Chevy Malibu look the same and are the same, and there's some badging difference, but they're just pretty much the same car. Toyota and GM are practically the same company. And we've just accepted that we will live with that kind of interchangeability and lack of choice. In 1948, Sam Barris drove by the Mercury dealership and he saw 49, new, brand new 49 Mercury sitting there. And he thought, that's uh, kind of an ugly car. It could be less ugly, but I'm going to have to do some stuff to it. So he went in, he bought it. He's making payments on it. Took it home, disassembled it, cut the top off of it cut a section out of the body, took the headlights and taillights and fenders and, and uh, bumpers out of it, welded it back together, remanufactured it, and made the first custom 1949 Mercury. They've become iconic now. Of course, in usual American fashion, industry then copied a lot of those innovations and put them into market in later editions of that same car and other cars. But that kind of innovation came from ordinary people taking a risk with their own money on their own objects. Could you imagine doing that? I mean, the, the car was not paid for. If you were unable to successfully remanufacture it, you'd be paying for a car that you could not drive. He didn't get the thing out of a barn somewhere. I think that we used to be a culture that was habituated to that kind of risk in an interesting way, and we just sort of pressed on and got to the goal that we wanted despite the risk. I think of our push for flight in this way. Da Vinci designed machines that I guess Theoretically, could he have manufactured them, could have flown. But it took the amazing innovation of the Wright brothers and persistence in that direction to achieve heavier-than-air flight. And the people who were trying to fly were putting their money where their mouth was. They were putting themselves on the line. They just died when they were wrong. And they remained, as de Tocqueville said in Democracy in America in 1835, um, as Americans are cheerful and optimistic. They knew they were right. They knew they could get there. The, the rest of it was just details. Someone would die, they'd write, oh, my dear, 
Flight is within our reach. We press on. Jim and Bob died today. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's an amazing amount of personal risk, but it's a kind of risk that's built on a strong probability and tremendous faith in success down the road, and even at times a sacrifice for the greater good. I'm thinking about this a lot because there's an ad that's been coming up on my YouTube feed. I've been watching a lot of YouTube, unfortunately. And it shows a bunch of these great American innovators. It shows the Wright Brothers, of course. It shows that iconic photo of the iron workers sitting on top of the Golden Gate Bridge eating their lunch. They're just up there with their overalls and their lunch boxes not strapped in or tied off or anything. It's kind of a obviously a risky thing. And it shows all these great images of, of Americans being scrappy, tough, determined, which I, 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 that really appeals to me. I really like that idea. I really like that you keep going despite people telling you not to and that you're going to not make it and then you prevail in the end. But the thing is, I mean, with that story, they prevailed in the end because they were doing something that was focused on the greater good. The ad never mentions it, but at the end of it, it just runs like a ticker tape thing or like a waterfall thing of different words. And it says on it something to the effect of go out to dinner, see a movie, go get ice cream, visit with your family, and just this list of ordinary activities that we're not doing right now. And it somehow equated the level of risk associated with that with the level of risk of trying to fly or doing a difficult job. I mean, sure, the Wright brothers risked their lives, but they didn't risk it to eat a sandwich with strangers. One of my favorite images of, um, from motorcycling is of Raleigh Free on his Vincent Black Lightning or Black Shadow. It's uh, There's some debate over which trim option it was. Um, in 1948, Vincent put 150 miles an hour on the Speedo, and... Raleigh Free decided to see if he could actually hit 150 miles an hour on the bike. Previous to that, bikes that could consistently run at 100 could crack the ton, as they called it, were considered very fast. So this was quite a bold statement by Vincent and quite a daring feat by Raleigh Free. So Raleigh Free went out into the dry lakes, started riding the bike. He got it up to high 140s it got the speed wobbles he laid it down one time he skidded for a quarter of a mile on his leathers he was all right he got up he was in his 40s by the time um, he was doing this too he was a owned a motorcycle dealership he wasn't some kid he decided that his leathers were slowing him down also the seat of the motorcycle was heavy so he walked out in the scorching hot dry lake bed wearing his bathing suit, his helmet and his gloves. Took the seat off the motorcycle. You can see in the image, he starts off with his bath slippers on and he kicks them off. He's barefooted. He's just crashed at 147 miles an hour um, with his leathers on, which saved his life. And now he's out there in a bathing suit. And he laid down on the bike to get a streamlined position. He's practically flying from the handlebars. And he made the 150 mile an hour two direction, one mile each way run 
They timed it at 150 miles an hour. It proved the point of the speedometer for no reason. The thing is, he didn't risk his grandma's life by doing that. He didn't endanger anyone else. The Wright brothers didn't fly their airplanes in Chicago. They flew them in Kitty Hawk for a reason. There's still nobody out there in Kitty Hawk. Anyway, I don't know if this ad is representative of anything, but it does point to the way that we confuse consumerism with individuality. We confuse risk for recklessness. And I think that's a problem. I hear all these people worrying about the nanny state, but I, I got to wonder, like, what is government for if not for dealing with a crisis like this? I don't think we're less risk-averse as a culture than we ever have been before, that we used to be. I don't know that we're more risk-averse either. I just would like to know what we're going to get for our risk and what our plan is. What I want to know is how we became the worst country in the developed world at handling a scientific medical crisis. We used to be the best in the world at things like this. There's been a lot of talk lately about the 1918 flu pandemic and how that played out for us. And I don't know that we're better now at dealing with it than we would have been then, despite all kinds of medical and scientific advances since then. In 1957-58, there was a, a large flu pandemic in America. It killed about 100,000 Americans, but it killed about 4 million people worldwide. And the reason it was gentle on us didn't have to do with American exceptionalism, at least not in terms of us just being like a different kind of human that wouldn't catch it, which seems to be one of the early pieces of rhetoric um, surrounding this pandemic. Maurice Heilman read a, an article in the New York Times It was talking about this large influenza outbreak in Hong Kong. He could see that it was going to spread. He could see that it was new, judging by the, the symptoms and the types of reactions. He got contacts in the military to send him strains of the virus that he collected from American servicemen. And he started developing a vaccine by the time the flu got here in the next winter. He had a vaccine in place. They were distributing it broadly, and it suppressed the outbreak, and 100,000 people died, which is not insignificant. That's probably the equivalent of about 200,000 people now based on population size. A number will certainly hit in this country, and unbelievably... And there was a obviously consorted effort to deal with that outbreak in 1957. Months before it ever got here, there was a plan in place. We talked about how we were going to move forward and what we were going to do. Of course, influenza is a different game, and we had other vaccines for it, and there was a mechanism in place to develop that more quickly. But the fact was that we were positioned as a country to best deal with something like that. And it seems now from the raw numbers that we're positioned uh, as a country 
as the worst at dealing with something like that. And that's sort of shocking to me. Our world is set up to make us so good at solving industrial problems, practical engineering problems like developing different screw types that will resist different types of corrosion and adhere to different types of materials and work with different types of exposure. We've been great at creating um, cultural innovation and even innovations that become practical technological innovations um, at an individual level. And this is just sort of like the individual inventor, the the Edison, the Tesla, the Wright brothers types. And I think that those people are still out there and I think that that's interesting, though I do think that that established industries work to suppress emerging technologies and I think that that's a problem. I mean, people forget that in the 1980s, Reagan removed the solar panels from the White House and that in the 70s and 80s following the, the that that particular gas crisis, um, there was a real development in solar. And if we'd have had a consistent line of of research and development from then to now, we'd be far ahead of where we are in solar. But still, we have individuals who are doing that. Culturally, we've had people who have changed the way we thought of ourselves as Americans. And uh, Part of my love of and interest in music is that we've made that more diverse and more inclusive often through music, not always. And that's been great. But when it comes to solving large-scale technological problems, or to think about it this way, medical problems, we don't have a mechanism in place for that. And it's been obvious for a long time that we've needed one. And not only do we not have a mechanism in place, but we've weakened rather than strengthened that mechanism. And that's not only unfortunate, that's tragic. I think it's really sad if we don't get the next Mavis Staples in our life. But I think thinking about what we need culturally still comes a little bit behind just making sure we're able to live. And a lot of us aren't right now. And none of us are living fully and just going out and going to restaurants and acting like this doesn't exist doesn't work because we've seen what happened in Florida. We've seen what happened in Arizona. See what's happening in California. So that's just not, that's just not an option. That's not a, that's not a risk that yields a solution. That's a risk that perpetuates the problem. If somebody was trying to invent a stoplight with a walk signal and they tried to do it by continually sending school children out into the road, that wouldn't be a, a good plan of action. So we need to think about this. We need to get together. We need to have the combined resources of the government, probably the military, probably universities and other, uh, other sources of intellectual capital. We need to get together on this. And if we don't, to use a bad pun, this is for my wife who loves them, we're all screwed. <laughs>